Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of A Little Bit Famous with Ted Murata. It is uh, at the time of this recording, the evening of the 4th of July, so fireworks may start going off at any moment. I don't know. Um, first of all, I just want to thank everybody. I've gotten to episode six here, and I really want to thank all of the people who have been listening to and subscribed to this podcast. It means a lot to me, um, a podcast as a long-form conversation um, requires a, a real commitment of time and uh, attention, and I'm extremely grateful for the people who have been tuning in to listen to this show. Um, I thank you all. I also want to take a moment to thank my guests who've been incredible, uh, beginning with Glenn Rosenstein, uh, Angelica Artifacts, Keller Williams, Elunia, and last week's guest, Mig Ayesa. Uh, I, I thank them all for their time. I hope you enjoyed hearing them. Uh, I have a couple of announcements to make. Um, the first is I am going to be starting a YouTube channel. Uh, in fact, it's already up. I'll be posting video content this week of each episode. Um, there'll be bonus material. There'll be outtakes and sort of random funny things that maybe didn't make the the episode. There'll be things that were really compelling, but we just I just didn't have enough time and, and needed to cut them just for time's sake, and, and I'll be posting that too. And you'll be able to see me and my guests on, on camera and uh, adds another layer to the experience of, of this show. So uh, the, the cha YouTube channel is called A Little Bit Famous with Ted Murata. You can hop on over there and, and uh, like it and subscribe to it and um, click the little bell button and you'll get notifications. Uh, another announcement that I haven't really been making much, I think I only did it on the first, very first episode, is just to let you know uh, that you can find me on uh, uh, Instagram, at Ted Murata. Um, I am a drummer, and I post drum videos and just other things going on in life. And if you're interested in seeing me play the drums and getting to know a little bit about me, um, aside from what you hear on the show, you can follow me at Instagram, at Ted Murata. I'm also on Facebook. I have a page for this podcast called a little bit famous. So you can find me at Facebook at a little bit famous. And um, I post clips and announcements and things like that there too. So uh, feel free to check me out there. Um, the last thing I wanted to say is that the show is now um, supportable. There's a link at the bottom of the description, clickable link where you can support the show if you like what you hear. And, uh, you know, it might help uh, keep the lights on for me um, as I continue to do this, this podcast that I truly love. So if you want to support the show, you can uh, find the link on the at the bottom of the description, and you can throw a couple of shillings into the old tip jar. Um, okay, so now we're getting to episode six. This is really exciting. Uh, this is an episode with Dave Agar, who is um, a, an unbelievably accomplished cellist and pianist and composer. We will talk about all of that during the episode, so I won't reveal too much. But, uh, you know, I have known him for a long time, but uh, as this episode clearly reveals in a, in a pretty uh, awesome way, how much I didn't know about him and, and uh, what an incredible guy he, he is. So I hope uh, you enjoy this episode, episode six. And uh, without further ado, hit it, Jay. <laughs> Here we go. Perfect. 
My guest today, <laughs> my guest today has a cello in front of him. Um, <laughs> my guest today is Dave Egar. He's a world-renowned cellist, um, instrumentalist, extremely talented guy, and uh, he happens to be an old friend. And I'm I'm absolutely thrilled to have him on the show. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey Ted, uh, thanks for having me. It's so great to be here, bro. Likewise, likewise. Um, so we we got to talk just a little bit in pre-roll, um, and and it's clear we have a lot to catch up on. And one of the things that I mentioned to you was, you know, we've known each other for a while. We 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 had the opportunity to play together, and it was really a a, a great experience for me to play with someone like you, just a, a musician of really impeccable talent. Um, and, and we toured together, but we we you know there's a lot I don't know about you, an awful lot I don't know about you because you just you know when you're working and stuff you don't really get the chance to sit down and share each other's biographies, um, you know. So so I have a lot of questions uh, uh, about what you know what got you to the place you're in right now. Uh, um, I would start with you know where where did you grow up and did you did you grow up in a in a family uh, that was a musical family. Yes, um, that's a really good question. I um, I grew up in a small town that's called Croton, New York, and Croton is sort of halfway between uh, New York City and Woodstock. Um, it's kind of the very end of the New York City commuter line, mm -hmm. and it's always really funny because people always think I'm from New York City, but I actually grew up in a town of three thousand people where you couldn't see the next house. So it's just oh. sort of funny because I actually was a country kid in a lot of ways. Um, my everyone in my mother's family did classical music. So it was always around. Um, and my mom ran a lot of like little kid music things. And I was pretty good at music like right away, which was good because there was a lot of things I wasn't good at, like baseball. So it was good that I had yeah, me, music. Me too. But I was kind of like, I have a funny life where I'm like good at a very, I'm very good at a very small number of things and then pretty terrible at everything else. So like, Exactly. <laughs> I, I just, I have to tell you that when I was, when I was in, played minor league baseball, when I was like eight years old, at the end of the season, I got a trophy for, the most walked player. <laughs> that was that was how awesome I was at baseball. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's cool. So, um, but the one feature of my town that was kind of bizarre and it ended up being somewhat life changing for me was that it was the town that the American composer Aaron Copeland retired to, and he actually lived wow. down the street from us. And um, he was extremely old. I, he died when I was about ten years old. Um, but when I was six, my mother was running a concert series at the library and he would come and sit in the back and like watch the concerts. And I think eventually he sort of helped out, like he put some money into these little, I mean, these were like the most podunk kind of little concerts you could possibly imagine. It was like, you know, little piano students playing like Fear Elise, but Aaron Copeland would come cause you know, he was 85 and wow. you know, in a little town with nothing to do. So, um, so uh, my mom thought it would be cool to teach me this little piano piece he wrote, which is called The Cat and the Mouse, which is a piece he wrote for children. And I didn't really, un I mean, I was like seven. I didn't understand what anything about what he was. He was just like some guy down the street. Oh, this is cool. Like the guy down the street wrote this piece, like plunk, plunk, plunk. Very cool. So I actually um, wrote him a letter 
and uh, put it in his mailbox. I like rode my little bike down, put it in his mailbox, and I was kind of like, yeah, I play your piece, and I, you know, you should teach me a piano lesson on your piece, you know, like all like kind of, you know, alpha dog, seven-year-old, like here I am, I'm the man, like, and uh, he actually uh, called me on the phone, and he was like, I think you should. So I ended up studying piano with Aaron Copeland at the end Jesus. of his class. And um, that kind of fast-tracked some stuff. Yeah. For me. I can um, imagine. And I kind of, you know, and and then um, one thing led to another. I was kind of just doing music all the time. So uh, when I was 11, I started studying at um, the Juilliard School in New York, which has a um, kind of a, a pre-college program. And that also was pretty amazing. I mean, just, mm -hmm. you know, I was a kid from a poor family and I, I won a scholarship there. So suddenly I got all these music classes that have really served me well my whole life. I mean, ear training and theory and band and like, you know, kind of all weekend long because it's like a Saturday, Sunday program mm -hmm. and um, really, really set me up. I feel like it was uh, I was really lucky. So that was a kind of the beginning. I mean, I was. I, one of the problems I had as a kid, and it's, it's not surprising that you and I played in a jam band because it sort of makes sense this way, was I just really liked to jam. So it's yeah. very hard for me to kind of discipline myself. I would play like all day. I'd play cello. I'd play piano. And for, for a while, I played drum set till my parents got rid of the drum set because they just couldn't take it. Um, but I, but I, I definitely was a kind of kid that just sort of played all day long. It was harder for me to kind of get in the whole discipline thing, but I did do it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that was most of my most of my childhood till I till I went to college was kind of was kind of doing just music all the time and then yeah. Can so. I can I ask did you uh, I, so you started on piano? That was that your first instrument? I did. I, I started on piano. I was really young, like four. And then I, I, I also started on cello pretty young. I got actually it's a kind of a bit of a funny story. I um I it was sort of my mom's dream for me to be a concert violinist. This was like some weird dream she had. So when I was six, she bought me a, a violin and they have this, this kind of violin teaching that's called Suzuki. And you kind of, it has all these little exercises you do. And one of the exercises you do is you walk around and you hold the violin like this without playing. You do it for long periods of time. Well, I wish I could have a better story for what happened, but you know, I was a pretty irrational six year old. So, uh, after three weeks of it, I decided that a solution to me not liking this was smashing my violin at a class, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I did. <laughs> oh my god! I did. I like kind of. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> it was. It was very rock and roll. I mean, at the time, I don't know what, but I did smash the damn thing, and I've uh, gotten a lot of trouble. Maybe you. Saw, maybe you saw like a video clip of Pete Townsend smashing a guitar or something. <laughs> probably did because I, I love Pete Townsend now, so I probably did. Um, yeah. So I smashed the thing and uh, that was the end of violin. So then uh, for Christmas that year, uh, my parents bought me a cello and they're like, it's bigger than you, you can't break it. <laughs> um, but I liked the cello right away. I, I liked that it had this vocal quality. I liked that it um, you couldn't be perfect because there's no frets. I liked the sort of mm -hmm. bluesy quality of it. So I've been kind of like exploring that most, you know, most of my life. Um, so yeah, it's like, well, I, I mean, I allow me to say for, for listeners and, um, I, when we, when we get to the end of the show, we'll, we'll talk about what you, what you're doing now and everything, and they can hear, you know, your work. You're, you're an extraordinary pianist as well as a cellist. And it was, a, it was always amazing to, to, to accompany you on the drums, you know, and you're right. You do, you do like to, and definitely know how to jam. 
because uh, because we had plenty of great jams. Um, <laughs> I just want to I just want to throw it back at you, which I'm not sure everybody's doing this, but I'm going to do this. That you are a great drummer. Ah, uh, I thank just you. Thinking, you know one of the things I've brought you up a few times to students because um, is it over the years because of the fact that like the hard thing about drums is that it's it's just very thankless this way there's people like yourself that are natural drummers whether they practice or not and then there's folks that just aren't yeah <laughs> so there's times i've actually brought you up as an example of somebody who always sounds good regardless of whether there's practice time or not thank you <laughs> but, man. but a lot of that had to do with the fact that you always played the song and that you have a funky groove and yeah those are two of the most important things in drumming probably the most important too yeah I, I agree. And and if, you know, um, if there are any drummers listening to the show, I, that's that would be my message to them, which is to serve the song um, and to have a good pocket. You know, um, that's just that's uh, that's all you need. You know, be a good listener. And yep. um, and, and, and uh, you know, one of the things that definitely years and years of playing in a jam band and doing tons and tons of improv. And I know I know you've probably had the similar experience is that you 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 really have to be an active listener. You have to be listening to what every every instrument in the band is doing, what every player is doing, not just the notes they're playing, but their physical body language, you know, watching the way they move because everyone in the in the in an environment like that of improvisation is a conductor at, at various times, you know, where where someone will give a musical cue and everybody will follow them and it's not even necessarily a musical cue it's just the way they move their body or the way they nod or something and you're like okay this is this is happening and and that's to me that has always been really key to being a good member of an improvisational group is to be really listening and watching um but i but i do want to ask when you when you started playing piano uh, you know, it's it's just kind of one of those questions I always want to ask artists. It's it's what was it that just drew you to the instrument? You know, what what because you could have done anything. You could have wanted to be a cowboy. You could have wanted to become a computer processor or an account. You could have loved math. And some of it is 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 the way, you know, just being born and, and having a certain kind of brain and, and whatever. But then there's this other thing that just it just draws you to, to to music and an instrument. Do you do you have memories as a kid of that? Of like really? Um, um, well, first of all, I did want to be a cowboy, and uh, don't we all? <laughs> I did want to be a cowboy, and then uh, pressured my parents into getting me horseback riding lessons, only to find that I was really allergic to horses, and that kind of killed the whole cowboy thing pretty fast. <laughs> it was so really. Amazing I, how I'll those never remember. It was like so funny. I think I was about that same age, like six or seven, and I was like, yeah. And we, we bounce like pressure them, pressure like okay. We found this stable, and you can ride the horse. And I remember going, and I started just like sneezing, but I would fight through that. I was like not gonna let this conquer my. And then after like an hour, I was like, all right, this is not gonna work. <laughs> like <laughs> it was like sneezing and crying, and like it was really amazing. It was really hilarious because I had some some idiot part of my mind thought that that actually was like like a, a viable future for me at six. But, Isn't um, that amazing? I mean, it's just those little moments that become destiny for us in one way or another, you know? <laughs> I know, it's so funny. I would say with instrumental music on both instruments, but actually specifically on the piano, and I think it's interesting because my piano records are a lot like this. Um, I was a, I was in a way a very shy kid, and talking was difficult for me outside of like school things. Um, 
I really found kind of a voice in instrumental music. I found I've always kind of had this. I found that it was a way that I could have an honest narrative in a way that flowed. Like from even when I was five and six, I would just sit at the piano for like three or four hours and just play so this kind of improvisational music, which interestingly eventually sort of made its way into being sort of the sound of what some of my solo piano records are. But um, I don't know. For me, I think there was just a way that the grammar of music had a narrative. I think um, both my dad and my stepmother, who were my most influential parents, are writing, writing professors. So I think that like fiction has been a very big part of kind of how I think about music because of that influence. I think I'm always the guy in the production room talking about narrative. I'm like, well, this reminds me of like Jane Eyre or this, what if this happens mm. in the story now? Or I think we could have something like this. And sometimes musicians look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, I'm like, no, no, it's like this Jane Austen kind of thing that happens right here. And then this other thing happens. And then this like this character kind of died and they're like, so it is a D seven chord or like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I think, I think from the beginning of it, I was most interested, which is one of the things that sort of drove me to spend a lot of time at the piano hanging out with the music of Chopin, especially, but mm -hmm. kind of more poetic composers Ravel that had, I think, a dimension that felt story driven to me, mm. um, as opposed to stuff that felt more analytical or technically. I was really sort of really liked this idea of music having a poetic slant to it. Um, it's also what got me, I think, made me eventually fall in love with the songwriter, singer-songwriter idiom for similar reasons that it, it really kind of encapsulated a lot of that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I would just sort of say, I think that's where it, uh, that's where it started. And then I think um, that piece of being shy actually became really important because even through high school, I felt so much more comfortable behind an instrument than I did in other ways, interacting. And so I feel like it kind of became a way that I kind of, and then it sort of started opening doors that would have been, I think, socially difficult for me otherwise. Like I wouldn't have been aggressive or competitive or like been the person who went to the party and had, you know, I, I kind of would have been a bit of a, you know, shy guy hanging by the wall. So I think, mm -hmm. I think that music was a way that I kind of uh, was able to begin my adult life just having a, a way it got me into college and some other things like that that i don't think would have happened the same way without it i don't think i really had the interpersonal skills to really pull that off without the music piece so yeah yeah you know it, and you just you know brought up another question in my mind um which is you know what what was your childhood like in your high school years like um you mentioned that you were shy i think a lot of musicians and artists are that way um, and they express themselves and, f and found their voices through their, their instruments or whatever their their art is. Um, did you have a lot of did you have friends? Did you did you feel like an outsider as you were growing up? Did you you know, did you have experiences of feeling not quite a part of or anything like that? Yeah. Wow. OK. Um, yes, I feel like very much so. I however, being able to go to first Juilliard pre-college and then a, a few sleepaway music camps that were super cool uh, as a teenager. I felt like when I was with musicians, I didn't feel that. Like I really felt like I belonged. 
I think normal high school, I went to a very sports-oriented high school that I, yes, I felt very much like the outsider that had somehow been displaced from the 19th century into a scenario that made almost no sense. You know, I'm like reading yeah. Samuel Beckett and like playing like Bartok and then, you know, going to the like JV football game. I'm like, this is just not my world. But, you know, so I, I absolutely, I feel like it was it was difficult to find a place for myself and particularly I think with the cello more than with the piano because I from the beginning I was improvising on the cello and I always had a kind of a different idea I knew I knew that I um, I went to college on a cello scholarship that I won but I knew from the day I got to college, I was like, I'm not going to be in an orchestra. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. want an orchestra job. Mm -hmm. I don't see myself putting on a tuxedo and like playing. And that was a source of a lot of anxiety. I ended up not majoring in music in college because of that. I was like, okay, we got to have a backup plan here. Mm -hmm. So I did major in, I did like pre-med, I did biochemistry because I was like, and I did a ton of music the whole time, mostly because I was Mm -hmm. on a music scholarship, but but I kind of didn't really have faith that I would find a way to do music that really would work professionally. And then towards the end of college, I had kind of one of those weird aha moments. It's just, life is so full of them, especially during this pandemic year. It's so weird. Like we make these choices. Oh, yeah. like, oh my God. And I, I always wonder if this, I've always wondered if this one little thing hadn't happened, if my life would have taken an entirely different course. But by senior year of college, I was really heavy into the science thing. And my girlfriend was an actress. So I was doing some about a lot of theater and I was kind of exploring that a little bit, which I didn't really see a future for myself, but it was just fun, you know, to yeah. do. But music had kind of taken not a backseat, but it really wasn't. It was a little confused. And then um, there's this opportunity happened where um, someone uh, was playing Beethoven Triple Concerto, which is a concerto for it's a solo piece for a violin, cello, piano, and full orchestra. So they were playing this piece in Carnegie Hall, but somebody had gotten sick. So somehow I knew the conductor, and he literally called me on a Monday and was like, can you do these shows at Carnegie Hall this weekend? And I was like, what? And I was like, but I just did it. And I didn't know the piece, so I like, you know, boot camp the piece, and I learned the piece, and I went and I did it, and it was a really positive experience. And I remember on the flight back to Boston, because uh, I was going to college in Boston, I was like, I was like, what am I doing? Like, and somehow on that flight, I was like, if I'm going to do music, I have to do it now. You know, mm-hmm. like this is, you know, I was like, I'm 20, just turned 21. I was like, if I don't do it now, it's not going to happen. Like, you know, I'm going to go to med school and like, it's just over. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not going to come back as a 28 year old after med school and do this. So I just right. kind of threw care to the wind and I, I moved to New York City and I, um, was I took an audition for Juilliard's master's program and somehow I got in and then I um, I had kind of an interesting flow from there. I, I They earmarked me really quickly, literally in my audition at Juilliard, they kind of earmarked me for like avant-garde music and modern jazz. And so the, from the day I set in there as a graduate student, they just threw me 100% into the like contemporary music jazz side, mm-hmm. um, which, which I'm so grateful for. Like, I'm glad they saw that in me because yeah. I didn't even see that. Like I was, yeah. I would have been like being like, I need to play my Mozart well. I think from the day one, they were like, you're never going to get hired to do this stuff. <laughs> we put you where you belong. And I'm, I'm really glad they did because, you know, one of my first gigs out of school was touring with uh, Michael Brecker, the famous jazz saxophone player. Yeah. So I'm really glad that they pointed me in a direction that like made sense for my abilities and, 
didn't make me spend 15 years trying to catch up with trying to win a symphony job that I just wouldn't have won. So yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that's I mean, first of all, that's that's incredible that that Juilliard saw in you what you did uh, on some level see in yourself. Like you said, you know, you knew you were you you love to improvise. You, you know, you knew you weren't going to want to sit in a chair in an orchestra for the rest of your life. You know, and they and they picked up on that. They saw your talent. They saw your your particular kind of creative drive in a certain direction and they they help nourish that that's awesome no i'm really grateful it's something that i always feel so wonderful about that aspect of the juilliard school that even though it is a very competitive and harsh school um that because they really do put a lot of effort into helping you understand where you actually shine even though there's some pain around that like we all want to be something else like i wish that i was like yo-yo ba or something but it was really helpful that they were kind of like you have a little bit of that but you have this whole other thing that a lot of other people don't have you know, let's help you with that because that's probably where your competitive edge lives. Mm-hmm. And I, I was, it was so grateful to my teachers there for actually seeing that because mm-hmm. I honestly didn't. I was just trying to play good like we all are in music school. Like I just want to play well. You yeah. know, I didn't really understand that, that you needed to kind of curate your playing to places where you actually make sense. And that's a huge part of the industry in general is really understanding like, you know, where you actually can work and make an impact. And, you know, sometimes it's awesome and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes there's things where there's artists that really, really want to do a certain genre that just you can see right away that the world isn't really going to, you know, run with them with that. Mm -hmm. They may have something else that's just going to work a little bit better in terms of their own success. So I think it's a really, I was very grateful to have that. And then, yeah, I mean, then pretty much, and then pretty much I toured until the pandemic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then I pretty um, much toured till last year. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to take a minute to just to sort of a park on on your description of of what what turned out to be really a life altering choice that you made because I went through it. Uh, I think anyone who is an artist has been through it, um, where you you decide that you're going to commit. And um, it's 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 funny that you you talked about it that way. You know, you're in college and your your backup plan thing. You know, um, all that stuff. You know, um, a friend of mine um, that I haven't seen or talked to in in a long long time from high school recently reached out to me and he sent me a quotation from um, an article about musicians and and the quotation essentially said you know, um, artists are, are the most courageous people in the world. And I, I'm not going to debate whether that's true, but the way that this person described, uh, what artists do in terms of making, you know, major choices that could result in disaster, uh, you know, for their lives and their financial stability and all that kind of stuff. Did you understand at that moment that you got this call about Carnegie Hall the the import of that moment did did you understand at all the the significance of it and what it would mean for your life because i i just want to say like when when for me when i when i you know i had all of those experiences too i was in college first of all i went to college where i went to college because i had a girlfriend who lived there and i didn't want to go away because i was a you know just out of high school scared little kid who you know, wanted to hang on to his girlfriend. And then she dumped me like five months later or whatever. But the fact that I was in that town is what led me to be in a band that I that I ended up touring with for over a decade. And and my whole life changed and my career changed because of it. And 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 you had a similar experience. And I know lots of people who do those little micro 
moments along the way uh, and, and seizing the opportunity when it arises. So for you, when, when you decided, you know, all right, this is my plan. Did you, did you have any sense of like that this, that this was going to have a profound effect on, on, on the course of your life? I don't think I had any idea how huge an effect it would have. I, I, I go over that moment a lot in my life. Cause I wonder, as I referred to earlier, I wonder what would have happened if, if that didn't happen. I'm always curious, like if that moment, and there's another moment I'll talk about a little later that, that, that was about a project that I've worked on for many years. It was a similar moment of just that kind of level of randomness making such a huge impact. Um, I, think, I think it's so, I certainly didn't have any idea when I made that choice what direction it would lead to. I, I, think, I think it was sort of a young, angry, talented kid being like, I got to try music now. And I, I think in the back of my mind, I honestly didn't think it would work. I think I honestly, the path that was in my mind was something like I would in, in the back of my mind, I think I thought, Oh, I'll go to New York for a couple of years. And then I I'll go to medical school, you know, like mm -hmm. this will be the, mm -hmm. the four years I try to do music from like 21 to 25. And then I'll do something sensible, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, and I think, um, I don't think I had any idea like, just that you know within 10 years from that i would have basically traveled basically all over the world with someone yeah. else paying for it which was amazing you know right. like and and had some of the experiences that i always you know dreamed of as a kid you know playing red rocks playing some of these things and in a context and i'm sure you've, you've had almost a very similar trajectory to me in this regard that you just never could have imagined as a kid. Mm -hmm. I mean, just being on shows where I'm like, we actually, this is crazy. We actually are playing for 15,000 people and I'm 26. And this yeah. is like, how did this happen? You know, yeah. there is somebody I grew up listening to who's playing right after us, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, I love it because I think, you know, what I would take from your statement about artists is, is just the word courage. Yeah. I think I think that in that moment where you just have a courage to take a chance on yourself. And I have a friend uh, named Janine Shepard. I met her through TED Talks. She's a really fascinating uh, writer and artist. She was an Olympic skater, uh, an Olympic skier, I'm sorry, a competitive Olympic skier and on the Australian uh, team. And a week before the second Olympics she was going to do, she actually was hit by a truck in, in, a, in, a, oh, in a hit man. and run. And she was paralyzed. And um, the doctors were basically like, that's it for life, basically. And she was like in the hospital for a year. And when she came out of the hospital, she still wasn't walking at all. And the prognosis wasn't great, but she saw a plane and she was like, well, if I can't walk, I'm gonna fly. Well, Janine is basically like, she has flown commercial planes. She's flown aeronautical planes. She's written six best-selling books. She's a mom. She walks without feeling her legs. Um, and one of the reasons I'm bringing it up is because wow. one of the things I learned from her that was so profound is she's like, when an opportunity comes, stop asking why me and just ask why not me. Yep. And I, I just feel like that's such a powerful thing for artists is just, you know, even like this year, I've moved from New York to Bristol, Tennessee, and my whole entire life changed. And it would have been very easy to be like, why me? This, this is awful. Like all my tours got canceled and my life in New York is over. And instead I was like, well, I'm going to learn bluegrass. I'm going to start a studio i'm gonna like do things i didn't have a chance to do and i think mm -hmm. we that courageous artist step is a real step to it goes kind of to some of the great things you just said about being in a jam band it's probably something we've learned from being in jam bands to see exactly the scenario you're in and really try to be as creative and as loving and as positive as you can be with what whatever just presents itself 
even yeah. if it's not what you quite had in mind. You know, I don't think I even understood. Like I've had this very um, awarded career as an arranger. I think when you and I first met, I did not even know what an arranger was. And I certainly never took an arranging class. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, one thing led to another and I, you know, did some songs that became somewhat iconic and, you know, like did this layered cello thing that people liked and it turned into something called Arrangement. And then I was mm -hmm. like, oh, I got a Grammy nomination for something I don't even really understand entirely what it is. You I get a glass of this and I'm going to try even really understand it, but that's cool, man. <laughs> I, time out. Uh, time out. Yeah, stop stop yeah. the presses. I didn't know you got a Grammy nomination. Yeah, that's I got unbelievable. A, I've got several now, but yeah. oh my god! All right, several. I have a couple last year actually, but yeah. So it's that's cool. absolutely fantastic. It's it's an interesting journey. Yes, I'm very yeah. very I'm very honored about that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So filing away in the back of my mind that you're in Bristol, Tennessee. Now I'm going to ask you about that later. Um, so where did you go to college when you when you were studying? Um, uh, when you were doing the science thing yeah i went to uh harvard university in boston so oh uh, you know just harvard i mean come on uh <laughs> this is this is crazy there's so much i'm learning about you already and uh <laughs> you didn't know all these years you've known me, like i know years. i know it's <laughs> yeah yeah you know yeah, i just went to harvard got nominated for several grammys it's cool uh yeah <laughs> it's harvard, really it's harvard remarkable Harvard was fun. I mean, it's a bizarre school. I think my social experience at Harvard was better than my educational experience. <laughs> but I don't know. We'll just I, leave. It, we'll leave it yeah, at that. <laughs> yeah, I, I really love going to Cambridge. There's there's just great food, and you know, just wandering around is and and the, and the Harvard um, Museum is great too. Um, it was a it was an interesting place to go to college. I mean, I think you know, like having a music scholarship at Harvard is a little bit like having a hockey scholarship. It's like, it's sort of like you sort of, the whole time you're very, very aware that that's why you're there. So like, you know, there were moments where I'm kind of like, I'm the dumb one in the room. I get it. Okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was just going to say, I have this image of, of Harvard students standing with like a, a glass of champagne and one of those old school monocles in oh, their eye. And you yep. saying, I, I, I'm a, a music, I have a music scholarship and them gasping and their monocles dropping into their champagne glasses. <laughs> it was a little bit like that, actually. It was a little bit like that. But, um, you know, I um, I had a good time. I mean, there was, I, I have to say that the best part of Harvard University were really the other students. I feel like everybody you met was really, really interesting. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it helped me. I came from like a very sort of classical conservatory type childhood. So I think that it really helped me kind of learn more about like the arts in general like i hadn't really been exposed much to like theater or dance or just you know aesthetics just like how you know like i feel like i was really strong on music technically but i really didn't understand like what expressionism was or why arnold you know like schoenberg wrote what he wrote and that he was part of a movement i just understood that you're supposed to play the notes right mm -hmm. so i think i think it was very eye-opening um i also got to work i also got to study with yo-yo ma on and off a little bit there he would visit like once a year and that was kind of awesome just because he was a yeah. like an idol wow. of mine growing up and still is an idol of mine probably um but um so it was really cool to have some experiences with him and and you know i got to you know it was it was um 
Cambridge is cool. I mean, it, it really was, you know, they like also kind of Harry Potter-ish. I mean, you know. And yeah, like, of, oh, of course. You know, like you have this ancient... like, weird, like, kind of like, I'm going to college, like, you know, in Harry Potter movie or something, you know. Well, like, yeah, I mean, the school you know? was founded in the 17th century. It's got this sort of ancient feel to it, and it, it's gorgeous. Yeah, so it was, It's. I'm glad I, I'm glad I went there. And it, it also, I mean, and I think, you know, it's, it, this is a fun interview because I'm kind of unpacking it for myself, too, which is that, like, I think that moment we're talking about where I made the decision to be a musician, I think it also gave me something that a lot of my musician friends never had, which was an opportunity to step away and make that choice for myself. A lot of my friends like, sort of went through the classical conservatory system and didn't have a moment like I did where I was like, wow, I, I think I'm going to do something else with my life. Mm-hmm. I think that recommitment as an adult to being like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to give this a shot. You know, I'm, I, I'm going to, I know this is like you're saying about courage. It's like, I'm going to take a chance on myself and try this artist thing. And I know it could work. I also know it could not work. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how long it's going to work for, but I'm going to give it a shot. I think it was helpful to be in an environment where I actually had that choice, you know, yeah. as opposed to just being in music schools the whole time and having it sort of chosen for me. I think, I think it's made it so much easier at times in my life when I've questioned music as an adult, like if a tour didn't go well, or if I was just didn't feel like being on the road, the fact that I was able to make such a strong decision as a young person that I had the choice to do something else and didn't do it. I don't know. It made me not have such an existential moment when, you know, you know, let's say there's one band I've toured with a lot. We did like three years and then it came to an end and I was kind of like, Oh, is this just kind of, I mean, you and I've had similar careers in this way. Like I've been more, I've had a very, very complex recording career where I've recorded with many, many people, but touring wise, I've had very, very specific things. I did a lot of Evanescence. I did a lot of Philip Phillips. I did, you know, now I've done a lot of Foreigner, did a lot of Five for Fighting, but I didn't tour with like a hundred different artists. I really had, you know, seven or eight artists that I was kind of a lot more dedicated to. So sometimes when a tour that was long came to an end, you know, you have this sort of like uh, hole where you're kind of like, okay, well that happened. And yeah. now, am I still a musician, or maybe I'm not a musician? You know, like you know, like I just did that for a year and a half, and now I'm like back in New York, and everyone who's forgotten who I am, and I have no work, and I'm like the guy who was on the last Evanescence tour, but no one really cares that I exist, and like you know, like so. I mean, yeah. every time something like that would happen, it wouldn't be as sort of existential as I think it might have been for other people, because I would always sort of be like, well, you know, I I was on this journey because I chose it. I didn't really like. You know, and um, yeah, I think my, my dad was very supportive of um, kind of what I wanted to do, which was very helpful too. Like, I don't yeah. think there was a pressure in the beginning of me needing to kind of make sense of this music thing. Like, okay, so I just have to say that it's 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 amazing that you use the word existential twice because I use it a lot on the podcast because <laughs> I really can't think of a better word to describe. Um, our experiences as artists, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, having moments in our careers where we literally are having an existential moment where it's like, is this going to happen? Is this not going to happen? Et cetera. Um, my, my very first guest is a, a producer named Glenn Rosenstein. And, and he brought up this, this idea, this phrase, the elation quotient that, that artists are somewhat addicted to these moments of elation that that come from doing what we do, um, and and that we do these things knowing that it could only, as he put it, could only invite pain for us. That might only invite pain. Um, 
And so I, I, that, that just brings a question to my mind, which is what, what were some of the greatest challenges that you had along the way, personally, professionally, that, that, that really affected you deeply, um, whether it was, you know, a, a, a gig or a tour that just totally just sapped your energy or demoralized you or other decision points in your life or experiences that were huge challenges that, that, that were existential moments for you that you Thanks. had to overcome. I think um, the the hardest one for me throughout was mostly dealing with me as a cellist. And it was just that I didn't fit a mold that people had seen before. Mm -hmm. So I've ended up to this day being an artist whose career was pretty much and I'm now now what's funny about this is the thing I'm about to say is something that makes me so grateful and so happy that it happened this way. But for many years, it was very confusing. I've had a career that has mostly been helped and built by other artists, not by the music business. Mm -hmm. Like it's really been, you know, artists who found me and like, you know, even this last year I've been re recording remotely the whole time, you know, people found me on Instagram or checked out a song I did, or like, it's really been a, a, a career where it's been entirely done by me. And I think one of the hardest things was, uh, especially in the beginning and still sometimes now because I played an instrument that people were unfamiliar with and I also did it in a way that people were unfamiliar with and I also didn't have like a look that people were used to with the cello that I tended to get sort of dismissed constantly when I would try to interface with the larger part of the music industry like booking agents you know like even like booking my own shows like I got to a place where you know I was really selling pretty large places out as myself uh, and booking it all myself. But when I would talk to booking agents, they'd be like, well, people don't want to hear a cellist. And I'm like, but I'm selling out these places that you guys book. And they're like, but you're a cellist. That doesn't make sense. I'm like, well, it may not make sense, but it's happening. Right. And right. so this kind of weird sort of feeling that I had to fight not only to be seen as myself, but to be seen for what I do. Um, because it was just different, uh, made it a pretty lonely climb in a lot of ways. I have to say that low was very influential to me in the beginning because I met him when I was very young, low favor. Let me, yeah, yeah. No, I just wanted to low say favor. this is you're, you're talking about low favor, who's a favor was very influential because I think um, he was somebody that kind of saw the diversity of my abilities and let me participate with everything I could do rather than people sort of being like, wow, you play the piano. It would be better if you could be more classical or you play the cello. Can't you just tighten that up and make it more like put on a tuxedo and make it more like what we're used to seeing? So I feel like first with him and then, you know, while I did Low Favor Band was the beginning of when I started working with Evanescence. I feel like Amy Lee was incredibly influential on helping me understand that we all have something emotional that's very personal and very important. And um, not to get into heavier psychological things, but because oh, that go was, ahead, yeah, go ahead. That That's something what this that show's I was, about. I was very denied as a child. Like I really didn't, in my family and also in the world, get to express myself very much. I think it was powerful to fight my way to a place in the music industry where I could play a way that I cared about and feel like I was getting some positive reinforcement. Um, with time, uh, my career built very organically. Um, in terms of like artists recommending me to other artists. So now I don't think about this, but I think that was the hardest climb was just, just feeling like anytime I tried to do moves that I would see friends of mine who are songwriters just do, and it would just happen. It just seemed so difficult because I would care about something that they didn't really want to care about, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so that was a difficult thing. And then, um, I think, 
a thing that is sort of ongoing, I'll be totally honest, because I'm thinking about it now, it's funny, yeah. because I'm thinking about it today, actually, is, um, you know, one of the co most complicated things about being a musician is just sort of, you're not, we're not driving the car a lot of the time. Like, we're so kind of, it's so dependent on, like, what phone calls we get, and, like, who calls us, and suddenly you don't have something, and then suddenly you have an eight-month tour, and suddenly you're in a completely different genre. And so I think that, that, I, over years, I've learned to be much more adaptive where I can kind of be like, oh, it's cool if I kind of don't know what's happening in the winter and it might be this. Oh, my gosh, it's a tour, you know. But in the beginning, there was a part of me, perhaps coming from my classical music rigidity, that just had a hard time with just being that um, creative about that side. And I had a um, uh, therapist years ago, and she said this thing that I just love. Um, I remember I... Um, I, I went into a therapy session and I just railed about all the things in my career. I was like, and this is happening and I don't know what to do with this. And I don't know if I should take this gig or if I should do this. And all these things that are pretty minimal now, but you know, for 24 year old me, they were like life and death things, even though mm -hmm. probably like some dumb gig in Long Island that no one cares about. Um, you know, <laughs> it didn't mean anything. Um, and she said this sentence, which has really stuck to me to this day. And I tell it to my students, she said, you're such a great improviser with music. It's so sad you're such a horrible improviser in your career. Yeah. And I just uh, love, yeah. I have held on to that sentence till today and I tell it to students because, you know, every day something changes. It's like, oh, I thought I was doing this. Oh, that's canceled and now this is happening. Oh, this, you know, and this this pandemic here, we've had the same thing. Things were not in person and they weren't. I mean, I just taught at this awesome uh, music festival, Five Seasons Chamber Music Festival in Iowa last week. And that was like, not in person, not in person. Then it was in person. So I was like, oh, we're driving to Iowa. So like, you know, um, so, you know, I, I feel like it took, it was a real challenge for me to get used to this idea that I could feel secure in myself, not really knowing everything that was going to happen. And I'm glad I got over it because I've ended up spending a lot of time in Asia in my career, which was not something that I would have made happen myself. But I'm glad I sort of had the courage to kind of be like, I'm going to the Philippines for six weeks. Cool, man. You know, and had some really, really amazing life experiences. So yeah, I feel like that's those were the kinds of things I'm trying to think if there's anything, anything else. I think um, I, I, I feel like music has a very sacred space for me. So in general, the more snarky parts of the music industry have always been a struggle for me personally. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, the sort of business side, the 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 sales side, the nastiness kind of dismissive, judgmental side of how people look or whether people's look is right or all these kinds of sort of casting sides are something that for a really long time shut me down a lot. I, I kind of had a really hard time with that side of it because I just felt like I didn't really have what it took to compete. And, th and then what I started to realize, it just sort of, as technology built, I realized that I had a lot of ways to do that that could be subtler like i'm not somebody who walks into a party and goes look at me i'm amazing but i am i do have fun with instagram like i do have fun with virtual promotion it's something that's easier for me so you know i think you know there's been some kind of silver linings even to the last year of like somebody who's a little more psychologically introverted like i am can kind of oh you know i've been able to break through some glass ceilings and work on some bigger projects just because it hasn't involved as much schmoozing and has mm -hmm. been more related to just you know doing the job and also interacting in a more of a virtual way that's just a little less like fabulous la party yeah oh the schmoozing what a word we <laughs> yeah, used to use we used to use that word all the time oh time to schmooze Oh my God. Uh, but, you know, I got to say, you know, you, you, you raise a great point and it's if you know, it, 
not to to uh, say something overly hackneyed here, but you know, if there is one certainty in the in the arts and entertainment world and music, it's that it's uncertain, it, it's unpredictable, it's it's volatile, um, and uh, you know, it it takes quite a bit to to endure that um, and to and to develop the skills to navigate that world and 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 to you know kind of go with what's happening you're right you get you know you get times where things dry up for a little while or or you know something pops up unexpectedly you know you just got to keep doing what you're doing if you if you want to persevere in the in the in the in the industry and, and well, one thought i have about that that i yeah students that i think is really important is that it's almost like you can think about your musical development as an individual like two separate rivers there's like your musical river and your career river and sometimes they come together and sometimes they're separate i think that even when you have a big music gig or you have no work if you have individual musical goals for yourself that don't relate to your career it always carries you through like like Sometimes when I did, I've done really, really long tours. Like I think 2017, I was on the road with Philip Phillips from like March through November. So that year, I also made a project of memorizing the Bach cello suites and recording them because I had all this time. So I was like, okay, I know the show I'm playing and I want to, you know, kick butt on that show and do a great job. But also we're doing like 200 shows this year. So by show number 40, I have a pretty good idea of what I'm doing. You know, I don't yeah, yeah, sure. you know, be messing it up. And so, you know, sometimes even when I'm working, I'm concocting a separate musical project to kind of keep my musical through line going. That's also great when everything stops because then you have something, you're kind of like, well, okay, everything stopped. I'm going to kind of like, you know, come up with something, you know, I'm going to continue whatever my own musical development is. It also does something very interesting, which is when something like, you know, amazing comes in, it kind of brings that peak down a little bit. Cause you're like, wow, that's totally cool. Like, I mean, I just found out I'm playing the Greek theater on October 1st. I think it is. I am. So that's an exciting thing, but that doesn't mm -hmm. stop my own thing I'm working on. I yeah. still keep working on that. So it, it's an exciting thing, but it's not so up here that it totally turns the rest of my life upside down. I'm like, I should go to LA two weeks before I should do this. I should, I was like, no, you know, I'm going to be chipping along doing my thing. And that's going to be a moment that's going to feel really good because we're coming back out of the pandemic. I'll be on stage with foreigner music directing the orchestra with my friend Chuck Palmer. And we're going to be rocking this and it's going to be a great way. And we actually finished Evanescence tour, I think there with the cellogram thing, Chuck and I did. So it's like going to be a nice little sort of bookend. And then you can see it for what it can be. Instead of like, one of the things I think that's very unhealthy that musicians do is they live on a very bipolar self-esteem roller coaster. Things are going great mm -hmm. and they're like, I'm the, I'm the them, I'm the person, I'm that. And then, you know, one thing goes wrong and suddenly they're like, I'm nobody, nothing's ever going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think you really have to, as a musician, like pull those things closer together and realize like, you know, you're going to do music, you're going to do a whole lot of music in your life. And the cool thing when you do as much recording as I do is, some things are going to blow up that you never expect, like uh, the the track, the Frank Ocean song, Thinking About You, that uh, Malay produced, that Chuck and I arranged. When we did that at four in the morning at Ocean Way in Los Angeles, I never thought we, I don't think we had a single thought that that song was going to be his biggest song and that that would be not only his biggest song, but something that we would be lucky enough to make royalties off for, you know, still, you know, six, seven years later. Yeah. You know, it would be a really, actually, a, a very resume and uh, professionally life-changing track. 
I don't yeah. think, you know, when I worked on Vita La Vida, it was similar. I had, there was no idea that Vita La Vida was going to be what it was. It was going to be a huge symphonic interlude piece. And then it turned into the single. So if you're in the spirit of the river of the creativity, like some of, and you do a lot of music, some of those things may turn into big things. And that's great. And many won't. And you can enjoy all of them. And sometimes something will become big that you don't like, that you don't think is very good. And you're just going to have to be like, cool, man, that Delta Airlines commercial was terrible that I worked on, but you no, know, it paid my rent for six months. So yay. Right, right, yeah. But it's, it's also like having real honesty with yourself about that stuff and being like, yeah. like if I was to be honest, I'll be like, you know, um, the work I did on thinking about you was good. The work I did on bad religion on that record was great. Do you know what I mean? Like to also just because thinking about you was a much bigger song that resulted in more money and everything doesn't mean that I suddenly think it's better. My job was better. I think real, very realistic self-assessment is really important all the time. You know, you're going to do like a little gig that does really well. You know, you, you just can't let those hills and valleys just sort of like explode your sense of self-esteem. You have to be mm -hmm. kind of like, like, I think you're a great drummer, whether you're a working drummer or not. That's my opinion of you. If you decided to do a tour, I'd be like, that's awesome. If you decided to take two years off, I'd be like, that's awesome. It's not actually, I actually think you're a better drummer than at least 50% of the professional drummers that are playing all the time that I work with. And I'm, I have a right to Ox. my opinion. No, yeah. I have a right to my opinion as an individual. But the reason I'm making I like your opinion very much. Is, well, I'm <laughs> being honest. I, I just think that that's the truth. Um, Thank you. To, for me. Now, the thing is like, is like, that's what you choose to do is what you choose to do. You know, mm -hmm. musicians who are kind of riding that fence where something good happens and suddenly their their self-esteem goes way up and then something bad happens and goes way down. That's one of the most tragic things I see, especially with singers. That's really hard to, to watch, uh, especially mm -hmm. when you're a sideman like I've been a lot and you're with artists and you're like, OK, their their stocks up and they're really easy to work with and in a great mood. And now their stocks down and they're screaming at the band and they want to quit. And, you know. Yeah. It's yeah. An interesting it's an interesting way the that that sorry if that got a little intense. No, I love it. it this is this is absolute gold. Um you know, I, I first of all, I just have to try to remember what you just said because um I, I think anyone listening who's a musician or or wants to be should should like write this down and have it etched in in marble. You said Riding the river of the spirit of creativity, I think was what you said. Oh, dude, I love that. That, that. that was that somebody, was somebody said that through me. Well, <laughs> it came from somewhere, man, and it's 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 beautiful. Well, I love you know, it. it's it's I've been thinking about exactly that a lot in this pandemic year, you know, because I've had a very strange year. I mean, I moved from you know, I I was stranded on tour actually. Um, what Where happened? were you? Where were you? Yeah, when it's that? kind of a good story. I'll tell it now, but um, yeah. um. So I left my apartment March 8th last year thinking I was going on a four-week tour with Rachel Sage opening for Howard Jones, the 80s star. Mm -hmm. Rachel is an amazing independent singer-songwriter I've worked with for years. I love her work. Um, so I was thinking, oh, I'll be gone for like six weeks. Like, this is great. I was actually scheduled to do the second week was in New York, so I didn't even bring many belongings with me because I was going to stay home. So I got on a Greyhound bus. I went to Cleveland. We did four shows, and the world shut down. Yeah. So the last show was in Pittsburgh and um, I didn't know what to do. The, you know, they're like tours canceled. 
I was like, and I called my roommate in New York, Phil Ficanti. I called him and I was like, should I come home? He's like, everything sucks here. Don't come home. So I had a friend in, in uh, Pittsburgh who's a choreographer and I called her and I was like, uh, I mean, and she's like, well, why don't I, you know, find you an Airbnb that's reasonable? It can't be more than 10 days or something that this thing's going to be a thing. Right. So I was like, cool. Yeah. This would be like my little mini vacation in Pittsburgh, whatever. Fine. Well, so that 10 days turned into about two months. And um, in the process, I was getting remote recording. But also it was hard being there. And I did do some great recording with my friend, Mac Ingalls, who's an amazing um, engineer there. And we were getting some really good work done. Um, but I wasn't in a great place, I'll be honest. It was, you know, I think the, like everybody in the quarantine, I think, you know, watching New York go through what it was, going through, seeing every day more getting canceled in my calendar. Um, and then my friend Blake, uh, he, uh, so I've been going to Bristol, Tennessee for a long time in the, I've just been in the bluegrass scene for a long time. This is the town I live in is the birthplace of country music. It's where the first, uh, country music records were made in 1927. So, um, he just was like, I have this garage house. And I was like, then he would send me pictures and I'd be like, cool, man. Okay. And then like a couple weeks later, he'd be like, you sure you don't want to come down here? Well, after a while, I think it got to like June last year, and I, I was just like, I, I can't, I can't. And so I just came down here, and uh, and I've been here all year. But but I'm sharing this info because I've been recording all year. And what's been really interesting about recording remotely with so many artists, and I've worked with, this is crazy, I'm not saying this to brag, it's just what happened. I've worked with over 200 artists this year recording remotely, mm -hmm. is being in this interesting energy of what we all went through with the pandemic and letting it actually affect me emotionally. And there's some records I worked on, like I worked on uh, Dar Williams' new record. I don't know if you know Dar Williams. She's a folk yeah. singer. Oh, yeah. She's, and like, it's like, it was so powerful to be like, wow, I'm actually working on something that feels like being in an insanely good movie as an actor. Mm -hmm. Like, just, mm -hmm. just to actually have the time to do a great job and to be like, wow, this, this content is so incredibly good that like, I'm actually going to all the feelings I'm actually having right now. Do you know what I mean? Like in this pandemic, I'm not actually pushing it away or trying to be social or like play the cello good or whatever, but I'm actually taking a breath here to actually like try to, you know, do something incredibly, what I perceive as really emotionally impactful to the best of my abilities. Um, so it was really interesting. And I, when I talk about that kind of river, it's like, it's like, no matter what happens in your career part, you have to honor the, the river of your own artistic development. Because yeah. if you push against that, it just doesn't work. And, and the weird thing about that is it might take you to different spaces. Sometimes it means it's time to be a teacher. Sometimes it means it is time to hit the road. Sometimes it means it's time to hit the studio. Sometimes it means it's time to just do your own project. But if you, you, know, if you don't kind of listen to that voice, that, that's where I think things can get pretty problematic, to be honest. Yeah, it was it was I mean, it goes without saying that it was a difficult year for 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 everyone. Um, and uh, and for me, you know, it meant a lot of isolation um, mm. and uh, and, you know, uh, same same basic concept. You know, I didn't work on 200 records, but <laughs> I wow. have a home studio. I have a great recording rig. I have great gear and and um, I uh, I do. I did session work, too, and I love doing session work and and uh, just going back to our mutual friend, Low Faber, for a second to to sort of, uh, you know, say some nice, deservedly nice things about him. Um, you know, it was it was sort of the depths of the pandemic and and he reached out to me and, and he said, I'm, you know, I'm working on new material. Um, would you be interested in playing drums on it? And I was like, man. Yes, 100 <laughs> percent. Yes, of course. 
And uh, and during that time, you know, I would just go into my studio and he would he would send me multi tracks of of these beautiful songs that he was writing. And I would I would get, you know, what I felt were the right drum sounds and I would sit down and I would play. And the more I grew to listen to the tunes, the more emotionally connected to them I became as I was doing takes. And I had the same kind of experience that you were describing. You know, it just felt warm and 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 lovely to be uh, active creatively again at a time when things were just so tough and 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 so i felt so lonely and but to feel and 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 also to be playing with you because we played <laughs> together on that record from different parts of the <laughs> from different you know, parts of know, the I, country i know i mean i want to i want to talk about that record a little bit more and i want to specifically talk about my experience with the um with the song kenosha because, oh yeah um, yeah but let me just let me just very quickly say the, yeah. the the album that our our friend Low Faber has written and produced and and Dave and I played played on, it's called Claiborne Avenue. Um, he goes by the name Doctor Low D O C T R D O C T O R Low L O. And I I urge everyone when this is over to go to Spotify and 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 search Doctor Low and listen to Claiborne Ave Avenue. It's a beautiful album. And and you were just about to talk uh, about one of the songs on it called Kenosha Baby. So go ahead. Yeah, no, what I was going to say, it is a beautiful record. Everyone should check it out. Lowe's an incredibly masterful songwriter um, and a great guitar player. And um, But one of the silver linings of the pandemic, I think, for those of us that were remote recording was that it allowed for a level of time and vulnerability that was rare before the pandemic because we'd all be busy with our lives and touring or other things that weren't even music. Um, for example, with Kenosha, like, you know, a lot of times when I was doing re recording before the pandemic, if it was in person, you'd go in and be like, oh, we have three hours to get three songs done. Let's get it done. Let's go. Here we go. And with yeah. Kenosha, like he sent me the song and I was really blown away. And uh, I love Randy Newman. So I called him and I sort of said, hey, listen, man, the hard thing about this song is to actually do this right. We have to really do it like Randy Newman. And I was like, I kind of need to take like an entire day and actually write an actual arrangement for this, you know, not like just... You know, be like, look, I played some cello on your song. Um, so I actually did. I took an entire day and I wrote it and I took another day and I I, I recorded it uh, with a friend of mine playing fiddle. Um, Josiah Nelson, I believe, played fiddle on it. And it was really powerful to not push away the actual feelings. Like to yeah. be like, wow, you know what? Like I have a lot of really strong feelings about black lives matter and like just a lot of especially a lot of my friends in the in the african-american musicians in the classical community have been so heavily marginalized for so many years finally being able to have their voices heard and like to have the honor to work on something and actually be like i'm not just going to play cello good i'm actually going to go through my own thoughts about this because i have really strong thoughts about this and i really want to you know be part of this you know very painful story that he's telling and see what my arrangement can actually like bring to light here. Um, I felt like it was really powerful and something that has helped me this year to grow as a musician. Cause I think a lot of times I have pushed my feelings away because I've been in a lot of touring situations where I'd be like fun Dave, like it's fun Dave. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I think like what you're saying, like, like um, I think in the case of that song, I think really like um, being able to ask a question, like what does equity mean to me? you know, you know, what are we doing wrong here? And how could that happen in my playing? Like, what could I do here? Like, how could I put this 
somewhere. Can I put it? Maybe I can't. Maybe it's undoable. Maybe it's something that can't even be said in music. Like, what is that? You know, but I feel like having those questions, um, you know, I feel like this has been a year where I've seen some pretty great music happen because I think people are just being really honest. Yeah. It's kind of awesome. Yeah, I I agree. And, oh, sorry and, if I got sorry if I got pretty heavy, but it's, no, it's, no. But I think no, it's important. This... Like, I, I mean, I think the work that Daniel Bernard Romain has been doing uh, regarding Black Lives Matter and classical music is so important. I think like just this idea that this there's a whole narrative that is not been said. Yeah, you know, and I think that you know, it's just you know to be able to you know help or be an ally just anything just you know just how do you bring that into your own playing that still is a european instrument and still you know is the cello and still mm -hmm. you know there's just so much and i i just love it as an example of this like and even what you said about playing the song and getting emotionally connected i love that we've had this time to really put time into things and not just be like oh the only time we can do it the only time that ted and dave can do it is four to six on thursday so yeah. let's not let's knock it out boys you yeah. know like yeah. i mean that that energy hasn't resulted in a lot of great music making over yeah. the years yeah then you just do your you, then you just do your microwave dinner solution you do the thing that you do best easiest right you know so yeah yeah this project with low was a great opportunity for me to because to, same thing i had time you know, Lo wasn't saying I need a, I need a take by, you know, send me, send me multi-tracks at 10 a.m. and say, I need a take by one. You know, uh, he allowed me the time to, to, to really get it right. And I just want to say, you know, I'm the kind of drummer who, like I said, kind of at the outset, I, I, my, my goal is to serve the song. And for me, I was glad that, that this was, that Kenosha baby was a song that Lo didn't want drums on. I, I, I wanted to, to not be on that song because it's just beautiful the way it is. And, and for, for listeners, please go to Spotify and listen to, to Kenosha baby by Dr. Lo. It's a, it's a song about the unrest in Kenosha, but it's also so much more than that. It's a song about America. It's a sort of plaintive cry. Uh, about America, and and I I think it's really it's one of the best songs I've ever heard. I, I mean I'm not I'm not even just saying I mean it's it's true. And I we we we're now touring. You know, Lo and I are touring in support of this album, Claiborne Avenue, and we did a show the other day where where he did that song. And of course, there's always this sense like, oh, you're going to do a sort of um you know a a a, a somewhat dark emotional ballad. What's the audience going to think? And I remember I was watching the audience very very closely. And you could see the moment that it dawned on them what the song was about. You know, you first hear a song for the very first time, you're like, mm, okay, I don't know what this is. But you, you I could see uh, across the, the faces of the people listening the moment when they went, oh, God, and that you could tell that the emotion of the song hit them. It was incredible. And that, to me, I just that's what's so wonderful about music and good music and i think and i think i'm you know going you know back to the word courage as an artist we talked about before i mean one of the things that you know i feel like my career in so many ways has been defined by great songwriters like i've mm -hmm. played we've gotten such a been so lucky to play with just so many great songwriters it's incredible i mean i just really won the lottery <laughs> it's like and, and i want to i want to take like, a few minutes to talk about that for sure <laughs> just feel so lucky you know um yeah. it's, i just feel like the it, it just that courage to tell those stories is such yeah. a 
powerful and beautiful thing to me yeah to really like go to that place is just it just you know that's the place that actual you know individual and cultural healing takes place in the music dimension which mm -hmm. i think you know i mean with all the years of 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 working with amy lee and evanescence i think that you know this this incredible church of healing sorrow that amy creates with evanescence that has moved people all over the world and all the emails I've gotten from fans about just how much songs like My Immortal or, or you know, um, have, have helped them through so much. It's just, it's been great to be, you know, a small part of that whole Evanescence, you know, like yeah. well, maybe not such a small part of it, but been, been doing, doing it for a while and I'm so grateful for that. But like to, to be kind of a part of this amazing energy that she has to not just do music, but to bring her individual pain and her individual working through it to get to a hopeful place to an audience in such a vulnerable and powerful way. And uh, we were playing a Sydney Opera House a couple of years ago, and, and that was the Synthesis Tour, which was a tour with uh, orchestra backing. What's it like to play the Sydney freaking Opera House? What, uh, what awesome. How did you feel about that? It was That's unbelievable. It was, I actually got to the best part about the Sydney Opera House was that like Amy did this thing, which was so cool, where she uh, had me do a little opening set where the Sydney Symphony backed me up. And so I got to play Back in Black with the Sydney Symphony backing me at the, at the Opera House, rocking out with my cello. And that was that was like a life experience. That was like a moment where I was like, I love life. <laughs> you know, this is amazing. You know, um, it is amazing. So, yeah, no, but I mean, I mean, but one thing that struck me that night at the Sydney Opera House, because it was a kind of a type of show that was um, it wasn't as loud as your Evanescence band show. It was a really elegant show. And so it was really all about the voice and her voice. And I was like watching the audience and watching her. And I was kind of like, this is a voice changing people mm -hmm. and in the most positive way like helping them, giving them a space to rage or sorrow. And it's just like, this is my friend who's mm -hmm. a genius, but she's my friend. We live on tour bus and hang out with her kid and stuff like that. But she's also somebody who's generous enough to really take her music to that level. And I think, you know, I, I really have been so lucky to have some mentors like Mike Brecker and Amy that have really kind of challenged me to sort of the highest, I would say sort of like, the highest ideals of what I think music can be in terms of its social responsibility, cultural responsibility for yeah. people. Um, so I don't know if I've ever achieved that in my own music, but I try. Well, you should. <laughs> I try every day. I try to be perfect in that kind of way. Yeah. Well, you uh, sure have with me. I mean, I'm, I, I, I absolutely love the way you play. Um, you know, so oh, very quickly, I want to ask you just a couple questions about um you know, some of the people you've worked with, obviously you've mentioned working with Evanescence and, and that's, that's amazing. And, and, and dozens of other um, credible performers and, and done tours and worked on so many great records. Is there, is there a, um, an artist that you worked with that stands out to you as a moment where you, you're kind of jaw dropped or something where you were like, Oh my God, uh, maybe even a little bit of a starstruck moment where you're like, I cannot believe I'm working with this person right now. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, yes, it's happened quite a few times, but I'd say a, a really funny moment was, uh, so I, I did the strings, um, and I was a solo cellist for Paul Simon's uh, last couple of records and he records at his house in Connecticut. Unbelievable. And, and, 
Um, but the moment that was so funny where I had this was that he had this idea that we would like bow objects from his kitchen. It's like a sort of experimental sound. So there was one moment where he was like turning a Cuisinart and I was bowing it. So I was like, this is pretty cool. I'm kind of like doing a duet with Paul Simon right now. <laughs> like, I was like, I was like, I was like, I'm bowing, I'm bowing Paul Simon's Cuisinart while he's turning it. I was like, this is kind of a, a really cool moment. Like, <laughs> that's just incredible. Just absolutely. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, like, I but, love that. You know, I, I, I've been so lucky, you know, I, I got to, to work with him. I, I got to work with James Taylor, which was amazing. Um, I got to work with Patti Smith on the banger record, which was amazing. Um, I've worked with Nora Jones a few times. Nora Jones is an absolutely insanely articulate and intelligent musician who really has a level of refinement that is amazing to experience in the studio. She really like, she'll, she'll work very meticulously on simple parts to craft them in these really, really artistic ways, which I really love. All of them have been, have been great. It's, it's also really interesting this last couple of years to work with a lot of artists that are kind of blowing up on TikTok and mm -hmm. Other non-traditional formats is just working with this artist Ricky Montgomery this week, who's blown up on TikTok. is very, very good, um, and it's kind of exciting to see that there's now new ways that artists can like manifest their careers without necessarily needing the you know the whole label structure and everything that yeah. you and I experienced when we were like 20. You couldn't do yeah. it. Without. I mean, you guys had a label deal. I had a label deal. Like everything kind of yeah. happened that way. So um, it's really refreshing and cool to see like a new kind of. Uh, a new kind of uh, dimension. I also got to, this was like a really great personal honor for me, but I, I got to work with a gentleman named Jeff Haynes uh, writing music for um, and playing on Pete Seeger's last record, which was a story. Oh, man. Uh, which if you haven't heard it, it's called The Storm King. It's, it's, it's Pete Seeger telling stories from his life, and I got to write a lot of incidental music backing the stories. And um, it was like, that was like a real big moment for me. Yeah, you know, that's especially that's coming incredible. from a part of New York State where he's from and just the whole Woodstock. Oh, yes. Thing. Storm I come yeah. from near Beacon. So like the whole piece, every piece of it was like a huge thing for me. And uh, I was yes, St crazy. Storm King is a beautiful place, too. I don't know if you've ever been there, but yes. uh, yeah, it's, it's gorgeous there. Uh, I mean, that's and I did actually thing. get to do the CD release with him a year before oh. he died. So I didn't meet, meet him briefly, but um, uh, but that was a. Because, because it's. I think for me, the things that are the most meaningful are not necessarily working on a hit song, but mm -hmm. working on something where you just kind of know that it's gonna have its uh, be a piece of history. You know, like you're yeah. kind of like, wow. Like even though like my name probably won't re be remembered as part of it, being like this is gonna be something that matters a hundred years from now or fifty years from now. This is gonna be an interesting. Because those are the things that make me the most excited. When you really feel like Esperanza Spalding's Chamber Music Society record, which I was on, like I just felt the whole time we were making it, I was like, this record is gonna be a very important record. Like people mm -hmm. are gonna check this record out for a long time. You know, mm -hmm. and it was awesome to you know that was so much more meaningful than it did win a Grammy that year. Fine. But the thing is, like, more impactful was being part of this interesting moment in chamber music jazz with Esperanza, where I was like, wow, this is a new thing that's happening. And I get to be part of this, you know, six piece ensemble that's making this record. I, I love that, you know, yeah. and um, I think that, you know, it's it's really important to be a musician alive in your time. We're all part of something. I read composers' biographies and musicians' biographies a lot, and it's always really cool because it's like when you read biographies from like the 18th century and stuff, and you realize how these guys 
and women's lives were so pedestrian. They're like, oh, I was in Leipzig and then I got an organ job in Amsterdam and then he got a, you know, and this happened and this happened and then it's like, and then it was Mozart. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, it's, um, it's funny that the way music education is taught, it's almost revisionistic as if these composers knew they were going to be stars before, you know, I mean, Franz Schubert died in complete obscurity at yeah. the age of 30 you know and Franz Schubert was in a lot of ways the first singer songwriter Schubert wrote 600 songs which he performed at weekly songwriter nights so in a lot of ways Schubert wow. was the first singer songwriter you know uh -huh. I mean in yeah. a lot of ways so yeah I mean that sort of gets tucked under the carpet but it's just reality you know? right 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 I, I have mean, a funny story I, I I was thinking that I have to tell oh, you oh do, do you, tell you know, I bet you don't remember this. It's a low favorite band story, but I have to tell you because it's very okay. funny. And you may we'll remember see. it. We'll see if I so, do. So, uh, I mean, this is like a silly story, but I, I like it. I feel like we should, I want to share it. Um, so when we did that Henry's house tour. Um, okay, let had, me just, again, let me just say for listeners, low favor who we've t talked about already in the podcast. He wrote a, a, a double album rock opera called Henry's house, which is where Dave and I first met. We played on the record. We did a tour in support of it. We actually played at an opera house here in my town. We did an entire month of shows with with actors and did a live stage performance. So, okay, getting back to your to your my silly story. little story, which is that it, it involves you because you were driving the truck. So, so we had like a van and we had this rider truck that had like a Leslie and all this gear in it. Yeah. And somehow there was one day that you drove and I was in the passenger side and we drove like across Illinois and somehow I lost one of my shoes. Yes. I, <laughs> I remember. I somehow like, I don't know what happened. I have absolutely no recollection. I think I must, we must have gotten to a rest stop. And I think what happened is that I opened the door I put my foot out and the shoe fell off and I was half asleep and I pulled it back in and closed the door. But all I know is that we were playing the Q bar in Iowa city and I woke up in Iowa city and my shoe was, I had one shoe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you're bringing this up. And I ended up, I ended up going through the whole entire day with one shoe. And I'll never forget. Low favor was like, he's like, well, you gotta learn. You can't lose your shoes on tour. So it's like, I was like, so I'm like, literally, and the Q bar had some kind of weird load in where we were like carrying stuff up multiple flights of stairs. So, so I was like, it was this whole day I spent it like, like an utter humiliation with like one shoe. I had only one shoe the whole entire day, and and low kind of using it as some kind of weird Mr. Miyagi moment of kind of teaching me that he wasn't going to help me solve the problem because that's the only way it wouldn't happen again or something like that. <laughs> Do you so. remember uh, just to add to that story? We we must have shared a hotel room that night because at one point you were wearing one of my shoes and I was like <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> what I, and I was like, "Hey Dave, what's going on? You got one sh one of your shoes and one of my shoes on. And I, you must have said something like, oh, I don't know. I lost my shoe or something. Yeah, I was like, I lost my shoe. I think it was <laughs> oh my like, God. I think it was like, like a day and a half that I maneuvered the world with one shoe. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> God. That was or we got to like a Walmart or something and bought a shoe. I still remember that. It was so funny, man. And, and, and I have to say you were one of the most entertaining people I've ever worked with on tour and toured with. You're, you're so funny. And you had this like great eccentric personality that I loved so much. But yeah, I think about that story. That that was a the, the missing shoe incident. <laughs> so I like to this day, it's like because I have no recollection. I'm like, what happened? Like, and I, I must have it was must have just been. I must have been like, oh yeah, man. Uh, there goes the shoe, and like, I don't know. But that's what happened. I don't know. I always chalked it up to what I believe is fundamentally true that you're a creative musical genius. And your brain is full of these beautiful mu musical and, and creative ideas. And so, you know, 
banal things like keeping track of your shoes is just not a top priority in your life, you know? And I, I, I just think that's well, charming. Incredibly <laughs> nice way to say that I'm super ADD. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, Dave, it's been really wonderful talking with you and catching up with you. And uh, it's great to see you again. I just want to ask if you, if you have anything that you want to share with listeners about what you're doing now. Thank you so much. Uh, I have a new record coming out. Uh, September 2021, which is called Awakening. Uh, it's my first solo piano record in many, many years, which um, it really took this pandemic to bring me to this space. Like uh, I've, I put out several uh, solo piano records that were pretty vulnerable early in my career. And um, they've, I've been very blessed that they've been gotten a lot of play around the world musically. Um, but uh, this year kind of brought me to a place where I really wanted to do music like that again. And there's a couple really cool features. Um, Dina Finney's on a track who you met a little bit back in the day. He's an amazing singer. And um, Priya Darshini, who's an Indian American classical singer, classical Indian yes. singer. Uh, who I'm who trying I, to get who I'm trying to get on the podcast. Who's amazing. <laughs> yes. And uh, yes. she and me and Maxi T and Chuck Palmer just did a record together called Periphery that was nominated for Grammy this year. And we just had a writing camp for her new record here in Bristol, which was like amazing. She's so talented. So she does a feature and Will Calhoun from Living Color is also a feature playing percussion. Awesome. And awesome. it's produced by Chuck Palmer and it's coming out on Doma Records and it's called Awakening and it'll be super cool. And uh, I will be on tour with Foreigner in uh, October. Uh, doing some symphonic dates. I, uh, along with Chuck Palmer Music, direct the Foreigner uh, band's symphonic shows with arrangements that we've written with Mick Jones, who's amazing. And that's a whole other story. Maybe you can yeah. We'll show. do a part two. I'll work on uh, that. Maybe I can, you just, you just talk to Mick. He's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then last thing, where 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 can people find you on, on social media? Uh, my Instagram is uh, a side of cello, like sideman. So it's like at a side of cello. Uh, also, my duo project with Chuck Palmer, Cellogram, which is at Cellogram99. I use Instagram for most things, and you can find yep. me on Facebook. I actually don't have a website, which is embarrassing and self-destructive, but it's mostly because <laughs> Instagram is the heart of kind of most of what I'm doing these days. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, well, thank you again so much, Dave. It's really been a wonderful talking with you. You too, man. Take care, my friend. Jam, jam live this year. I think uh, we might. I, think I hope we can too. And by the way, if you ever need, if you ever need a session drummer, call me. Oh, you know, you, you know that like halfway through this discussion, I was when you said that thing, I was like, oh, yeah, dude, you're, you're getting that call. You're getting that call. Awesome. All right, man. Have Thank a great you. day. I'll see you soon, brother. Take care, my man. Take care. This episode was produced and edited by yours truly. Big thanks to Dave Agar for being on the show. A little bit of famous theme music by the one and only Jay Duris. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you next week.